Section 12 of American Notes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rick Cornwall. American Notes by Charles Dickens. Chapter 10. As it continued to rain most perseveringly, we all remained below. The damp gentleman around the stove, gradually becoming mildewed by the action of the fire, and the dry gentlemen lying at full length upon the seats, or slumbering uneasily with their faces on the tables, or walking up and down the cabin, which it was barely possible for a man of the middle height to do, without making bald spots on his head by scraping it against the roof. At about six o'clock all the small tables were put together to form one long table, and everybody sat down to tea, coffee, bread, butter, salmon, shad, liver, steaks, potatoes, pickles, ham, chops, black puddings, and sausages. "'Will you try,' said my opposite neighbor, handing me a dish of potatoes, broken up in milk and butter, "'will you try some of these fixings?' There are few words which perform such various duties as this word fix. It is the catum quotum of the American vocabulary. You call upon a gentleman in a country town, and his help informs you that he is fixing himself just now, but will be down directly, by which you are to understand that he is dressing.' You inquire on board a steamboat of a fellow passenger whether breakfast will be ready soon, and he tells you he should think so, for when he was last below they were fixing the tables, in other words, laying the cloth. You beg a porter to collect your luggage, and he entreats you not to be uneasy, and he'll fix it presently. And if you complain of indisposition, you are advised to have recourse to Dr. So-and-so, who will fix you in no time. One night I ordered a bottle of mulled wine at a hotel where I was staying, and waited a long time for it. At length it was put upon the table with an apology from the landlord that he feared it wasn't fixed properly. And I recollect once at a stagecoach dinner, overhearing a very stern gentleman demand of a waiter who presented him with a plate of underdone roast beef, whether he called that fixing God all's mighty's vittles. There is no doubt that the meal, at which the invitation was tendered to me, which has occasioned this digression, was disposed of somewhat ravenously, and that the gentlemen thrust the broad-bladed knives and the two-pronged forks further down in their throats than I ever saw the same weapons go before, except in the hands of a skillful juggler. But no man sat down until the ladies were seated, or omitted any little act of politeness which could contribute to their comfort. Nor did I ever once, on any occasion, anywhere during my rambles in America, see a woman exposed to the slightest act of rudeness, incivility, or even inattention. By the time the meal was over, the rain, which seemed to have worn itself out by coming down so fast, was nearly over too, and it became feasible to go on deck, which was a great relief, notwithstanding it being a very small deck, and being rendered still smaller by the luggage, which was heaped together in the middle under a tarpaulin covering, leaving on either side a path so narrow that it became a science to walk to and fro without tumbling overboard into the canal. It was somewhat embarrassing at first, too, to have to duck nimbly every five minutes, whenever the man at the helm cried, Bridge! And sometimes, when the cry was, Low Bridge, to lie down nearly flat. But custom familiarizes one to anything, and there were so many bridges that it took a very short time to get used to this. As night came on, and we drew in sight of the first range of hills, which are the outposts of the Allegheny Mountains, the scenery, which had been uninteresting hitherto, became more bold and striking. The wet ground reeked and smoked after the heavy fall of rain, 
and the croaking of the frogs, whose noise in these parts is almost incredible, sounded as though a million of fairy teams with bells were traveling through the air and keeping pace with us. The night was cloudy yet, but moonlight, too, and when we crossed the Susquehanna River, over which there is an extraordinary wooden bridge with two galleries, one above the other, so that even there two boat teams meeting may pass without confusion, it was wild and grand. I have mentioned my having been in some uncertainty and doubt at first relative to the sleeping arrangements on board this boat. I remained in the same vague state of mind until ten o'clock or thereabouts, when, going below, I found suspended on either side of the cabin three long tiers of hanging bookshelves, designed apparently for volumes of the small octavo size. Looking with greater attention at these contrivances, wondering to find such literary preparations in such a place, I decried on each shelf a sort of microscopic sheet and blanket. Then I began dimly to comprehend that the passengers were the library, and that they were to be arranged edgewise on these shelves till morning. I was assisted to this conclusion by seeing some of them gathered around the master of the boat, at one of the tables, drawing lots with all the anxieties and passions of gamesters depicted in their countenances, while others, with small pieces of cardboard in their hands, were groping among the shelves in search of numbers corresponding with those they had drawn. As soon as any gentleman found his number, he took possession of it by immediately undressing himself and crawling into bed. The rapidity with which an agitated gambler subsided into a snoring slumberer was one of the most singular effects I have ever witnessed. As to the ladies, they were already abed, behind the red curtain, which was carefully drawn and pinned up the center, though as every cough or sneeze or whisper behind this curtain was perfectly audible before it we had still a lively consciousness of their society. The politeness of the person in authority had secured to me a shelf and a nook near the red curtain, in some degree removed from the great body of sleepers, to which place I retired, with many acknowledgments to him for his attention. I found it, on after measurement, just the width of an ordinary sheet of bath post letter paper, and I was at first in some uncertainty as to the best means of getting into it, but the shelf being a bottom one, I finally determined on lying upon the floor, rolling gently in, and stopping immediately, I touched the mattress, and remaining for the night with that side uppermost, whatever it might be. Luckily I came upon my back at exactly the right moment. I was much alarmed on looking upward to see by the shape of this half-yard of sacking, which his weight had bent into an exceedingly tight bag, that there was a very heavy gentleman above me whom the slender cords seemed quite incapable of holding. And I could not help reflecting upon the grief of my wife and family in the event of his coming down in the night. But as I would not have got up again without a severe bodily struggle, which might have alarmed the ladies, and as I had nowhere to go to, even if I had, I shut my eyes upon the danger, and remained there. One of two remarkable circumstances is indisputably a fact with reference to that class of society who travel in these boats. Either they carry their restlessness to such a pitch that they never sleep at all, or they expectorate in dreams, which would be a remarkably mingling of the real and ideal. All night long, and every night on this canal, there was a perfect storm and tempest of spitting, and once my coat, being in the very center of the hurricane, sustained by five gentlemen, which moved vertically, strictly carrying out Reed's theory of the law of the storms, I was fain the next morning to lay it on the deck, and rub it down with fair water before it was in a condition to be worn again. 
Between five and six o'clock in the morning we got up, and some of us went on deck to give them an opportunity of taking the shelves down, while others, the morning being very cold, crowded around the rusty stove, cherishing the newly kindled fire, and filling the grate with those voluntary contributions of which they had been so liberal all night. The washing accommodations were primitive. There was a tin ladle chained to the deck, with which every gentleman who thought it necessary to cleanse himself, many were superior to this weakness, fished the dirty water out of the canal, and poured it into a tin basin, secured in like manner. There was also a jack-towel, and, hanging up before a little looking-glass in the bar, in the immediate vicinity of the bread and cheese and biscuits, were a public comb and hairbrush. At eight o'clock, the shells being taken down and put away, and the tables joined together, Everybody sat down to the tea, coffee, bread, butter, salmon, shad, liver, steak, potatoes, pickles, ham, chops, black puddings, and sausages all over again. Some were fond of compounding this variety and having it all on their plates at once. As each gentleman got through his own personal amount of tea, coffee, bread, butter, salmon, shad, liver, steak, potatoes, pickles, ham, chops, black puddings, and sausages, he rose up and walked off. When everybody had done with everything, the fragments were cleared away, and one of the waiters appearing anew in the character of a barber, shaved such of the company as desired to be shaved, while the remainder looked on or yawned over their newspapers. Dinner was breakfast again without the tea and coffee, and supper and breakfast were identical. There was a man on board this boat, with a light, fresh-colored face, and a pepper-and-salt suit of clothes who was the most inquisitive fellow that can possibly be imagined. He never spoke otherwise than interrogatively. He was an embodied inquiry. Sitting down or standing up, still or moving, walking the deck or taking his meals, there he was, with a great note of interrogation in each eye, two in his cocked ears, two more in his turned-up nose and chin, at least half a dozen more about the corners of his mouth and the largest one of all in his hair, which was brushed pertly off his forehead in a flaxen clump. Every button in his clothes said, Eh? What's that? Did you speak? Say that again, will you? He was always wide awake, like the enchanted bride who drove her husband frantic, always restless, always thirsting for answers, perpetually seeking and never finding. There never was such a curious man. I wore a fur greatcoat at that time, and before we were well clear of the wharf, he questioned me concerning it, and its price, and where I had bought it, and when, and what fur it was, and what it weighed, and what it cost. Then he took notice of my watch, and asked me what that cost, and whether it was a French watch, and whether I got it, and how I got it, and whether I had bought it or had given me, and how it went, and where the keyhole was, and when I wound it every night or every morning and whether I ever forgot to wind it at all, and if I did, what then? Where had I been to last, and where was I going next, and where was I going after that, and had I seen the President, and what did he say, and what did I say, and what did he say that I was said that? Eh? Lor now, do tell. Finding that nothing would satisfy him, I evaded his questions after the first score or two, and in particular pleaded ignorance respecting the name of the fur whereof the coat was made. I am unable to say whether this was the reason, but that coat fascinated him afterwards. He usually kept close behind me as I walked, and moved as I moved, that he might look at it the better, and he frequently dived into narrow places after me at the risk of his life, that he might have the satisfaction of passing his hand up the back and rubbing it the wrong way. 
We had another odd specimen on board of a different kind. This was a thin-faced, spare-figured man of middle age and stature, dressed in a dusty, drabbish-colored suit, such as I never saw before. He was perfectly quiet during the first part of the journey. Indeed, I don't remember having so much as seen him until he was brought out by circumstances, as great men often are. The conjunction of events which made him famous happened briefly thus. The canal extends to the foot of the mountain, and there, of course, it stops. The passengers being conveyed across it by land carriage, and taken on afterwards by another canal boat, the counterpart of the first, which awaits them on the other side. There are two canal lines of passage boats. One is called the Express, and one, a cheaper one, the Pioneer. The Pioneer gets first to the mountain, and waits for the Express people to come up. Both sets of passengers being conveyed across it at the same time. We were the Express Company, but when we had crossed the mountain, and had come to the second boat, the proprietors took it into their heads to draft all the Pioneers into it likewise so that we were five and forty at least, and the extension of passengers was not at all of that kind which improved the prospect of sleeping at night. Our people grumbled at this, as people do in such cases, but suffered the boat to be towed off with the whole freight aboard nevertheless, and away we went down the canal. At home I should have protested lustily, but being a foreigner here I held my peace. Not so this passenger. He cleft a path among the people on deck, we were nearly all on deck, and without addressing anybody whomsoever, soliloquized as follows. This may suit you, this may, but it don't suit me. This may be all very well with down-easters and men of Boston raising, but it won't suit my figure nohow, and no two ways about that. And so I tell you, now, I'm from the brown forest of Mississippi, I am, and when the sun shines on me it does shine a little. It don't glimmer where I live, the sun don't. No, I'm a brown forester, I am. I ain't a johnny-cake. There are no smooth skins where I live. We're rough men there. Rather, if down-easters and men of Boston raising like this, I'm glad of it. But I'm none of that raising nor of that breed. No, this company wants a little fixing, it does. I'm the wrong sort of man for em, I am. They won't like me. They won't. This is a piling it up. A little too mountainous, this is. At the end of every one of these short sentences he turned upon his heel and walked the other way, checking himself abruptly when he had finished another short sentence, and turning back again. It is impossible for me to say what terrific meaning was hidden in the words of this brown forester, but I knew that the other passengers looked on in a sort of admiring horror, and that presently the boat was put back to the wharf, and as many of the pioneers as could be coaxed or bullied into going away were got rid of. When we started again, some of the boldest spirits on board made bold to say to the obvious occasion of this improvement to our prospects, Much obliged to you, sir. Whereupon the brown forester, waving his hand and still walking up and down as before, replied, No, you ain't. You're none of my raising. You may act for yourselves, you may. I have pinted out the way. Down Easters and Johnny Cakes can follow it if they please. I ain't a Johnny Cake, I ain't. I'm from the brown forest of the Mississippi, I am, and so on as before. He was unanimously voted one of the tables for his bed at night. There is a great contest for the tables, in consideration for his public services, and he had the warmest corner by the stove throughout the rest of the journey. But I never could find out that he did anything except sit there, 
nor did I hear him speak again until, in the midst of the bustle and turmoil of getting the luggage ashore in the dark at Pittsburgh, I stumbled over him, and as he sat smoking a cigar on the cabin steps, and heard him muttering to himself with a short laugh of defiance, I ain't a Johnny Cake, I ain't. I'm from the brown forest of the Mississippi, I am, damn. I'm inclined to argue from this that he had never left off saying so, but I could not make an affidavit of that part of the story, if required to do so by my queen and country. We have not reached Pittsburgh yet, however, in the order of our narrative. I may go on to remark that breakfast was perhaps the least desirable meal of the day, as in addition to the many savory odors arising from the edibles already mentioned, there were whiffs of gin, whiskey, brandy, and rum from the little bar hard by, and a decided seasoning of stale tobacco. Many of the gentlemen passengers were far from particular in respect of their linen, which was in some cases as yellow as the little rivulets that had trickled from the corners of their mouths in chewing and dried there nor was the atmosphere quite free from zephyr whisperings of the thirty beds which had just been cleared away, and of which we were further and more pressingly reminded by the occasional appearance on the tablecloth of a kind of game not mentioned in the bill of fare. And yet, despite these oddities, and even they had, for me at least, a humor of their own, there was much in this mode of travel which I heartily enjoyed at the time, and looked back upon with great pleasure. Even the running up, bare-necked at five o'clock in the morning, from the tainted cabin to the dirty deck, scooping up the ice-water, plunging one's head into it, and drawing it out, all fresh and glowing with the cold, was a good thing. The fast, brisk walk upon the towing path, between that time and breakfast, when every vein and artery seemed to tingle with health, the exquisite beauty of the opening day, when light came gleaming off from everything, the lazy motion of the boat when one lay idly on the deck looking through rather than at the deep blue sky, the gliding on at night so noiselessly past frowning hills, sullen with dark trees and sometimes angry in one red burning spot high up, where unseen men lay crouching around a fire, the shining out of the bright stars undisturbed by noise of wheels or steam or any other sound than the limpid rippling of the water as the boat went on, all these were pure delights. Then there were new settlements, and detached log cabins, and frame houses, full of interest for strangers from an old country, cabins with simple ovens outside made of clay, and lodgings for the pigs nearly as good as many of the human quarters. Broken windows patched with worn-out hats, old clothes, old boards, fragments of blankets and paper, and homemade dressers standing in the open air without the door, whereon was ranged the household store, not hard to count, of earthen jars and pots. The eye was pained to see the stumps of great trees thickly strewn in every field of wheat, and seldom to lose the eternal swamp and dull morass with hundreds of rotten trunks and twisted branches steeped in its unwholesome water. It was quite sad and oppressive to come upon great tracks where settlers had been burning down the trees, and where their wounded bodies lay about like those of murdered creatures while here and there some charred and blackened giant reared aloft two withered arms, and seemed to call down curses on his foes. Sometimes at night the way wound through some lonely gorge, like a mountain pass in Scotland, shining and coldly glittering in the light of the moon, and so closed in by high steeple hills all around, that there seemed to be no egress save through the narrower path by which we had come, until one rugged hillside seemed to open, and shutting out the moonlight as we passed into his gloomy throat, wrapped our new course in shade and darkness. 
We had left Harrisburg on Friday. On Sunday morning we arrived at the foot of the mountain, which is crossed by the railroad. There are ten inclined planes, five ascending and five descending. The carriages are dragged up the former and let slowly down the latter by means of stationary engines, the comparatively level spaces between being traversed sometimes by horse and sometimes by engine power, as the case demands. Occasionally the rails are laid upon the extreme verge of a giddy precipice, and looking from the carriage window the traveller gazes sheer down without a stone or scrap of fence between into the mountain depths below. The journey is very carefully made, however, only two carriages travelling together, and while proper precautions are taken is not to be dreaded for its dangers. It was very pretty travelling thus at a rapid pace along the heights of the mountain in a keen wind to look down into a valley full of light and softness, catching glimpses through the treetops of scattered cabins, children running to the doors, dogs bursting out to bark, whom we could see without hearing, terrified pigs scampering homewards, families sitting out in their rude gardens, cows gazing upward with a stupid indifference, men in their shirt-sleeves looking on at their unfinished houses, planning out tomorrow's work, and we riding onward, high above them like a whirlwind. It was amusing, too, when we had dined and rattled down a steep pass, having no other moving power than the weight of the carriages themselves, to see the engine released, long after us, come buzzing down alone, like a great insect, its back of green and gold so shining in the sun, that if it had spread a pair of wings and soared away, no one would have had occasion, as I fancied, for the least surprise. But it stopped short of us in a very business-like manner when we reached the canal, and before we left the wharf, went panting up this hill again with the passengers who had waited our arrival for the means of traversing the road by which we had come. On the morning evening, furnace fires and clanking hammers on the banks of the canal warned us that we approached the termination of this part of our journey. After going through another dreamy place, a long aqueduct across the Allegheny River, which was stranger than the bridge at Harrisburg, being a vast low wooden chamber full of water, we emerged upon that ugly confusion of backs of buildings and crazy galleries and stairs which always abuts on water, whether it be river, sea, canal, or ditch, and we're at Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh is like Birmingham in England, at least it sounds people say so. Setting aside the streets, the shops, the houses, wagons, factories, public buildings, and population, perhaps it may be. It certainly has the great quantity of smoke hanging about it, and is famous for its ironworks. Besides the prison to which I have already referred, this town contains a pretty arsenal to, and other institutions. It is very beautifully situated on the Allegheny River, over which there are two bridges, and the villas of the wealthier citizens sprinkled about the high grounds in the neighborhood are pretty enough. We lodged at a most excellent hotel, and were admirably served. As usual, it was full of boarders, was very large, and had a broad colonnade to every story of the house. We tarried here three days. Our next point was Cincinnati, and this was a steamboat journey, and western steamboats usually blow up of one or two a week in the season. It was advisable to collect opinions in reference to the comparative safety of the vessels bound that way, then lying in the river. One called the messenger was the best recommended. She had been advertised to start positively every day for a fourth night or so, and had not gone yet, nor did her captain seem to have any very fixed intention on the subject. 
but this is the custom, for if the law were to bind down a free and independent citizen to keep his word with the public, what would become of the liberty of the subject? Besides, it is in a way of trade, and if passengers be decoyed in the way of trade, and people be inconvenienced in the way of trade, what man who is a sharp tradesman himself shall say we must put a stop to this? Impressed by the deep solemnity of the public announcement, I, being then ignorant of these usages, was for hurrying on board in a breathless state immediately, but perceiving private and confidential information that the boat would certainly not start until Friday, April the 1st, we made ourselves very comfortable in the meanwhile, and went on board at noon that day. End of chapter 10 Recording by Rick Cornwall